Hello, hello. Welcome back to your English 7011X Literary Text and Critical Theory Podcast, Episode 2. I hope this recording will prove interesting to you and useful in your study of critical theory. If not, rest assured there will be another one coming sometime soon that will either actually prove useful or merely add to your confusion. Uh, but I'll try and keep them coming regardless. This is Ramsey Scott speaking to you from the City of Angels, Los Angeles. It's a sunny blue day this Thursday, March 26th. So I want to talk today a little bit more about structuralism and post-structuralism and ways of conceptualizing the relationship and interplay between the two. And one of the ways to do that is, in, in generally speaking, to look at the vessel and the contents of whatever it is you're involved in creating or articulating yourself through or existing within. And so, for example, right now, here I am speaking to you in a podcast, in the form of a podcast. I've had a music that played on the way to hearing my voice. And when I began speaking, I said a number of things to situate myself and to create this imaginary relationship between the sound of my voice and your ears hearing it somewhere out there. Now, there are all kinds of formal constraints that have dictated to me and have indicated to me and that I have also participated in and thereby to reinforce those formal constraints that are involved in the dynamic I just described involving this podcast itself. How I introduce myself, how I use music and so on to set the tone, what I imagine the responses of listeners to be, and even and there are still many steps, by the way, between the sound of my voice that I'm recording right now and the file existing somewhere online or in the interweb in a form that you can then go to and access and download for yourselves. And all of those steps involve shaping the materials, the digital files, uh, attaching text to them, explaining what they are in terms of, uh, or, or, or defining them in a particular way, giving the podcast a title, a brief description uh, on the platform that I've used so far to share the podcast. Um, there, that platform in and of itself has to cohere to various standards set by, for example, Apple. If I want the podcast to be available in, the, in that platform on iTunes, course there are commercial entities involved and so there are all kinds of pressures that are acting on the podcast and interceding in that process of me delivering this supposedly intellectual material again from my 
from recording my voice to that voice reaching your ears. All kinds of ways that the uh, these formal entities and sometimes actual material entities, as in the computers and the hard drives and all of the other actual uh, uh, components that allow this to function, all of these stand between the voice that I'm recording and that voice being received somewhere out there by you. Now, when we looked at some of the writings of Jacques Lacan, we observed that Lacan has a description of language and that uh, one of the ways of imagining that description is to imagine a, uh, a gold-plated necklace, let's say. It's a, a necklace, of course, forms, uh, this necklace is in the form of a chain. And if we were to zoom in on that chain, we would see one link and that link going around and uh, another link. So they're being they're interconnected. There are the links, but the principles of language that Lacan is talking about are such that if we then zoom in on one of those links, we see that that link in and of itself is composed of links. Okay, so that one link in our necklace, when we zoom in on it, is if it is 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 as if it is its own chain link necklace. And then if we were to zoom in on one of those links we would see that it too is a chain link necklace. And I was thinking about this also with regard to uh, something like identity. Okay, so as I'm sitting here in Los Angeles speaking to you wherever you be, maybe in New York, maybe in another country, who, I don't know where all of you have dispersed to during this crisis, but I'm wearing a shirt. It's a t-shirt and it's got the state of Oregon on it. I don't know, I originally, I, I'm from Oregon, okay? Uh, so, let's say that I'm wearing this shirt in New York, it will probably register as a shirt from Oregon, and then when I'm in New York, normally someone will say something like, oh, Oregon, I love Portland. Well, Oregonians know that Portland is to Oregon, sort of like New York City, is to the state of New York, and by that I mean that there's New York City and then there's quote-unquote upstate, and in Oregon there's the Portland area, and then there's Oregon. <laughs> and I'm from Oregon, I'm not from Portland. So uh, it's an important distinction to me and to other Oregonians that just doesn't register outside of Oregon. Now if you look at my shirt and you're from Oregon, you might pay more attention to the lettering that's inside the outline of the state of Oregon on my shirt. And in that writing, you'll see the name Gold Hill, Gold Hill, Oregon. Now, most Oregonians don't know where Gold Hill is. There's also the words of the Rogue Valley. Some Oregonians know where the Rogue Valley is, most, I suppose. Uh, Gold Hill, though, is a, is a locality that's really almost uh, off the map. It's not. It's on the map, but you, you get the idea. And so... There are layers to the level of the, the number of signs and the, and the way that those signs might be understood with regard to this t-shirt that I'm wearing. Shout out, by the way, to all my fellow natives of Gold Hill. I'm joking. There are about a thousand, a thousand people who live in Gold Hill to this day. I'm pretty sure none of you have ever been any of those people. But the idea is that on this t-shirt, there, there are some signs that are going to be understood in a general way by a broader collection of people. And then, depending on your level of expertise with regard to certain localities in Oregon, uh, 
you will read the shirt differently and in, interpret it with a connection to a more and more specific meanings. Now, a structuralist might say, aha, if you know enough, you can get to the bottom of Gold Hill. And by the way, Gold Hill only has a bottom, as far as I know. Um, but uh, I love to make fun of my hometown. Uh, anyway, um, so structuralist, from a structuralist perspective, you can increasingly unpack the various layers of meaning that might be built into this shirt, including the idea that, well, uh, maybe people from Gold Hill go around with a chip on their shoulder because people don't have enough respect for Gold Hill, or at least respect its obscurity enough. Uh, whatever you could you could decide that having visited Gold Hill is the ultimate test for Gold Hillness, at least as it as pertains to understanding this T-shirt. Or maybe because it turns out the T-shirt is from a zipline operation, a perfectly mediocre zipline operation, I might add, but I appreciate that it exists. My community generally has not had successful businesses, and that sounds like if that sounds like too great a generalization, I assure you it's not. But anyway, uh, the point is that the the point that I'm trying to make is from a structuralist perspective, we might be able to get enough information to interpret as best we as best anyone possibly can all the possible meanings invested in this T-shirt and me wearing it today and all of the ways that different contexts might shape those possible interpretations and meanings and so on and so forth. However, I'm here to say I'm from Gold Hill and at some point to me, the relevance of the, the importance of Gold Hill as a system of meanings breaks down. In other words, I don't reach a state of transcendence knowing that I'm from Gold Hill or having that as part of my identity. At some point, the sign comes to appear empty, or there's no more, there's a signifier, and inside of that signifier might be another signifier, but at some point I reach a signifier that signifies nothing, or that doesn't tell me anything more. It seems to be empty. What does it mean? I don't even live in Gold Hill anymore. What do I care about Gold Hill? What, what, do I, what will I learn knowing that I'm from Gold Hill? Now, a funny thing happens sometimes when I tell people from Oregon, they attach special qualities to my Oregonian-ness that can be sort of absurd. Let's say that we're out for a hike and we get a little turned around or we're not exactly sure which trail to take. Someone might say, you're from Oregon. You know, how to, you know how to survive in the forest. Tell us which way to go. Well, anyone who knows me well knows that I have a terrible sense of direction and I'm the last person in the world that you would want to f help you find your way in the woods. Actually, I might be a little bit better at it in the woods than I might be, say, uh, in a foreign city. But regardless, uh, I don't. the fact that I'm from Oregon did not endow me with any magical abilities to navigate the world differently from anyone else, as far as I can tell. Certainly my experience tells me I don't have any of those special abilities. Now, of course, you could just, someone might say, why not just ask you what it means to you to be an Oregonian? And certainly, 
This is the kind of solution that Jacques Derrida is tracing throughout the history of Western philosophical thought. The idea that we can go to a source, to an origin, for the voice, for vocalization, for wisdom. We can just ask Socrates, and Socrates, the voice of Socrates, will tell us the answer. Give us the answer, go to the source, the origin, ask the person, have them speak, and if only we can eliminate writing, the act of inscribed transmission, then we can, we can have the actual answer. In the beginning was the Word. When we receive, for example, the Bible, we are told this is the Word of God, but we are also told that at some point the Word of God was spoken. It was heard. It was a voice. And skipping ahead a couple thousand years, when we get to the philosopher uh, Heidegger, Barton Heidegger, 20th century German philosopher, Heidegger talks about that we're supposed to uh, revel in the voice of being, that there, there should just be this voice speaking back to us, being, announcing itself to us, direct transmission of, of experience, of information, of perception. And that is, for Derrida, the repeated error of Western philosophical thought, that at some point we're going to strip away all of the confusions and obstructions and the media that stand in the way of our understanding so that we can accept a pure experience of being as it speaks to us. So it's this fantasy of pure, unmediated experience or transmission of information that Derrida is trying to unravel for us. And basically, if you look at from a bird's eye view of grammatology, consists of a series of analyses where one by one, Derrida visits the work of Plato, of Saussure, of Nietzsche, of Heidegger, and shows how in each case they remain wedded to a fantasy of pure, unmediated truth-gathering and transmission of truths that relies upon fundamentally flawed uh, analyses or formulations in which there is, for example, a line between the sensible and the intelligible. And once something is made intelligible, it has lost its link to the sensible. And that there's this continual kind of uh, um, slippage uh, and that ultimately each of these philosophers ends up contradicting themselves as they revert to the kinds of metaphysical, as in transcendental, spiritual, religious kinds of thinking that they are trying themselves to critique. So they keep reverting back to a system of thought which draws a, a line in the sand in which there's some kind of black and white thinking and there's a favorite binary term that's going to be uh, contrasted to an unfavorable term and this is the pattern of Western philosophical thought writ large. So for example in the pages 311 and 312 which I suppose are around 320, 321 in the PDF thumbnails Derrida lays out a whole list of quotations where you have people using language 
uh, as a metaphor um, to describe things like nature, you know, uh, Galileo, it, the book of nature, is written in a mathematical language. Or uh, I'd like this quote from Schubert, this language made of images and hieroglyphs which supreme wisdom uses in all its revelations to humanity, which is found in the inferior language of poetry, and which in the most inferior, inferior and imperfect way is more like the metaphorical expression of the dream than the prose of wakefulness. Uh, we may wonder if this language is not the true and wakeful language of the superior regions, if when we consider ourselves awakened we are not plunged in a millennial slumber, or at least in the echo of its dreams, where we only perceive a few isolated and obscure words of God's language, as a sleeper perceives the conversation of the people around him. That's the Schubert quote. So you have language, which is supposedly part of the fallen word, world, being used as continually as a metaphor to tell us how God speaks to us in the unmediated world. So there's a rever in reverting to the metaphor of language, we have uh, built into the system the undoing of the system. In other words, reverting back to linguistic metaphors to try and explain all the ways that the language of God or some kind of transcendental language is written on the world itself, or on the ontic, the, the real, the really real. Uh, and so in reverting to this metaphor, trying to use language as a metaphor for God's own language, uh, there's something that becomes a little upside down. There's something suspicious happening here. It's as if we're, we're imagining this transcendental language of language itself, a perfect language of God, and we have to revert to a fallen language of man in order to access that higher transcendental metaphysical language of God. And this is, this is a continual problem or a continual pattern. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a pattern. It just is what is and what has been for Derrida in the history of Western philosophical thought. And Derrida points out around pages 313, 314, that even the radical breaks in Western philosophical traditions where people like Nietzsche and Heidegger try and undo this tradition and try and challenge it and rewrite it, they ultimately revert to similar kinds of metaphors. Uh, phone, he talks about phone a lot. He's not talking about phone. He's not talking about making a call on a phone. He's talking about a phone. And my understanding is that this word Phone means both, or phonie, I'm not sure, uh, means both sound and voice in Greek. So it's a marvelously Janus-headed word. Um, and it also points to phoneme, as in the sounds, the perceptually distinct units of sound that allow us to distinguish one word from another. Uh, and so... We're dealing here with the rudimentary elements of language that are imagined as being traced back to the voice itself. And I find it very helpful here to remember uh, that these myths that Derrida is talking about absolutely also affect our relationship to language. And what I mean by that is that, at least, or my relationship to language when it comes to writing. So for example, in the realm of creative writing, there is a particular ideology that in, often infects the way that writing is taught and that involves, and you see this repeated in reviews and so on, but it involves this idea that writers have to, 
quote-unquote, find their voice. Over and over again in the history of Western metaphysics, Derrida is arguing and suggesting, is demonstrating that the voice is given preference over writing. The written text is the imperfect template, the imperfect copy, the imperfect uh, replica of the spoken word. And the Bible, he doesn't go into this, he doesn't, but he alludes to it repeatedly. But the Bible, if you think of the history of Christianity, is an excellent example of exactly what he is saying. We do not have God speaking to us. We have God speaking and his speech being recorded in the writing, in the text that is the Bible. But it's clear always, over and over again, that God speaks. That it is the word, that when we say the word of God, what we're talking about is God's voice. The voice of God. Logos. And that makes this text that we know as the Bible uh, an interesting one, uh, example I think of this this concept of writing as the imperfect copy. But that's also reinforced in Saussure's model for language, because remember that Saussure, as I talked about in in, the, in episode one, focuses on utterances, on speech. But there's the added irony, as Derrida points out, that we're dealing with a quote-unquote, phonetic language. And so even the specificity of the system of writing in and of itself seems to point us toward the concept of writing being the copy, the imperfect copy of pure articulation, which is coming ostensibly from the voice. And he then goes into, uh, he also talks about Rousseau, with regard to this, because for, for Rousseau, for the concept of a perfect savage, of man's nature expressing itself unburdened by the strictures of society, of civilization, writing being the civilized variety of an articulation of selfhood, where versus the natural, pure cry unadulterated cry of the voice crying out in the wilderness. This is where Rousseau imagines the, a kind of purity of presence, the voice crying out in the wilderness, and he even gets into the idea that consonants are somehow the interruptions that allow for meaning, but that are also even closer to civilization, whereas a pure unadulterated cry, uh, a pure inhabiting of, a, of the vowel, the voice in the vowel, would be somehow closer to, quote-unquote, the natural articulation, natural establishment of a presence in language. But it would have to happen outside of language, because as soon as you have consonants and the articulation of one sound is distinguished from another, for Rousseau it seems that the natural man, man's pure presence, is being disrupted, interrupted, corrupted by some kind of civilizing presence. And so even in the imagining, or always, even always already, always already, as Derrida says, in the imagining of a pure voice, of a pure presence, of a pure 
sound of articulation, articulating itself purely without the strictures of society and culture and writing, even in the imagining of that purity. There's a need to try and articulate also how that purity would be different, would differ, would defer to other varieties of language. And without those differences, without the difference between pure Rousseauian crying out of the voice in the wilderness as differentiated from the voice that incorporates consonants on the way toward an intended meaning or the articulation of meaning as it is understood by others. Without those differences, there is no ability to articulate the fantasy of a pure, unadulterated speech outside of the strictures of writing. So there's an interdependence based upon differences that allows for the construction of the whole system. And that's built in even to our fantasy of a phonetic language where the writing would be the pure copy of the voice. In the section of, of grammatology that we have excerpted in the Rivkin and Ryan reader, Derrida is leading us toward a uh, reading of Rousseau that exposes, and exposure is a classic trope in Rousseau, by the way, in his Confessions, there's a famous exposure scene where he actually exposes, exposes himself to some washerwomen at a fountain and then is chased and beaten. And Jean-Jacques, JJ, let's call him, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, confesses that one of his pleasures in writing is exposing himself, actually, to the reader, uh, letting all of his flaws be exposed to, to light and sharing them. And so Rousseau's stance on writing is marvelously contradictory and hypocritical. And it's this, the, it's this contradictory nature of Rousseau that makes him such a rich target for Derrida's analysis. And so Derrida, for example, traces the ways that Rousseau actually play, praises writing. Uh, while on, the, on page 327 in the original, uh, text of Rivkin and Ryan's reader, thence the letter writes Derrida, writing is the evil representative repetition, the double that opens desire and contemplates and binds enjoyment. Literary writing, the traces of the confessions of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, speak that doubling of presence. Rousseau condemns the evil of writing and looks for a haven within writing, writes Derrida. It repeats enjoyment symbolically, and just as enjoyment has never been present except in a certain repetition, so writing, recalling enjoyment, gives it as well. Rousseau eludes its admission, but not the pleasure. We recall those texts, quote, saying to myself, I have rejoiced, I rejoice again, quote, I rejoice again in a pleasure that no longer is, quote, incessantly occupied with the thought of my past happiness, I recall it, so to speak, chew the cud of it to such an extent that when I desire it, I am able to enjoy it over again. Writing, this is Derrida's words, writing represents, in every sense of the world, represents enjoyment. It plays enjoyment, renders it present and absent. It is play, and it is because it is also the good fortune of enjoyment repeated that Rousseau practices it while condemning it. I shall set down in writing those delightful contemplations which may still come to me each time that I reread them will give me new... And this contradiction in Rousseau 
is typical of the contradictions throughout the Western philosophical tradition. And the that's the basic claim that's underlying this, this critique of Derrida as he looks back at It's a classic romanticist move that Rousseau is making here to declare in language inexpressible feelings and emotions beyond the reach, beyond the scope of writing. It's this kind of feeling that you see often in romantic texts. And there's a classic example from William Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, which is considered a, a poem that's considered uh, the, one of the foundational texts of English Romanticism. It's a text written uh, contemporaneously with Rousseau's, roughly speaking, with Rousseau's Confessions. So Wordsworth and Jean-Jacques Rousseau being uh, historical contemporaries. And in the, I'm picking up from uh, a famous passage here from Tintern Abbey, William Wordsworth, where, and the setup is that he, Wordsworth, it's a first-person poem, the speaker in the poem, uh, it's, a, it's an autobiographical poem. The speaker has returned to this beautiful place where there used to be an abbey. There are the ruins of this religious building. And he's looking out over this landscape and he's reflecting upon the fact that this is a place that he visited while he was a child and that those visiting this place out in the countryside has has shaped the way that he sees himself and understands his place in the world and wordsworth writes though absent long these forms of beauty have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye but oft in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities i have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet felt in the blood, felt along the heart, and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure, such perhaps as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life. His little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Nor less, I trust, to them I may have owed another gift, of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. In Tintern Abbey, Wordsworth is addressing his sister, Dorothy, and in effect, one of the ways of reading the poem is that he's saying that the best and most meaningful experiences he, have had, he has had have been out in nature in an encounter with the natural world where somehow the mind is able to read that text of nature in a way that transcends language and teaches or educates or edifies in a manner that is so profound that it cannot even be captured in language. For Rousseau, there's even another category of, of thought in between pure experience and the articulation of the experience in language, and that's the form of the imagination. The imagination for Rousseau is yet another intermediary between 
man and the world. Derrida writes on page 326, such is the paradox of the imagination. It alone arouses or irritates desire, but also it alone, and for the same reason, in the same movement, extends beyond or divides presence. Rousseau would like to separate the awakening to presence from the operation of imagination. He always presses on toward that impossible limit. And then Derrida gives this quotation from Rousseau's Emile. How many merchants lament in Paris over some misfortune in India? There is a healthy, cheerful, strong, and vigorous man. It does me good to see him. A letter comes by post. He falls into a swoon. When he comes to himself, he weeps, laments, and groans. He tears his hair, and his shrieks re-echo through the air. You would say he, he was in convulsions. Fool, what harm has this bit of paper done you? What limb has it torn away? We no longer live in our own place. We live outside it. What does it profit me to live in such fear of death when all that makes life worth living remains? We see in Rousseau's critique here of modern modernity, modern life, where we're dependent upon uh, the, the, this business transaction, transaction going on in a, a, a continent away from us. It's a classic critique of modernity, a classic romantic critique of modernity, in which the letter carries us outside of ourselves. Uh, the text binds us to these imaginary lands far away, and what is lost is the pure presence of the present, the pure experiencing of the present. Uh, in the confessions, in terms of the present and the, this being a constant problem for Rousseau, there are a number of things not mentioned in this excerpt from Derrida that if you read Rousseau, uh, really ring true that Derrida, the arguments that Derrida is making. And that's something that, that's very hard to know when you're just getting this excerpt in the Rivkin and Ryan reader. But one of the most memorable and strange, Rousseau's Confessions are really a remarkable and strange uh, autobiographical text. But one of the, the, the features of this romantic writing and of writing in general that Derrida returns to over and over again, and that's ever present, that's, there's some irony in using that terminology, but it's a constant theme in Rousseau, is the fact that the, the, the uh, representation of an absence and all of the the irony and the contradiction and the paradox involved in that functioning of the sign and this goes to right down to Rousseau himself who his mother has died I believe in childbirth right so his his birth is also the the extermination of, of his mother um, and he says that his father would have him sit on his lap and that he became the sign of his of his mother the way of his father remembering his mother was to have little Jean-Jacques sit on his lap and the presence of Rousseau would bring back for his father the uh, the absence of his dead mother that his father would weep while sitting holding him on his lap Rousseau himself in his own confessions becomes the sign of his absent deceased mother. And of course, the, 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 the interpretive gymnastics made available to readers from this, these kinds of remarkable passages are quite fascinating to Derrida and something to play with. And it's not that Rousseau is wrong or right when he wants to be in the present. It's that in order to articulate his desire for that full, pure presence, 
he reverts, he must revert to metaphors involving language and involving a presence and an absence and so on that entirely contradict the, the concepts that he's trying. And it's this pattern that Derrida is pointing to in Rousseau of that inherent contradiction in the use of language and the attempt to articulate some kind of metaphysical qualities of experience. It, it's that pattern of contradiction that Derrida is interested in and that he's using Rousseau to try and explain to us as readers. What we are dealing with in writing, as Derrida says on page 329 in the original, is a substitute that is substituted for a substitute. And he concludes by tying Rousseau to this broader pattern, and he says, A speech without consonantic principle what for Rousseau would be a speech sheltered from all writing, would not be speech at all. It would hold itself at the fictive limit of the inarticulate and purely natural cry. Conversely, a speech of pure consonance and pure articulation, this is the Leibniz bit that he's talked about previously, a speech of pure consonance and pure articulation would become pure writing, algebra, or dead language. The death of speech is therefore the horizon and origin of language, but an origin and a horizon which do not hold themselves at its exterior borders. As always, death, which is neither a present to come nor a present past, shapes the interior of speech as its trace, its reserve, its interior and exterior difference as its supplement. But Rousseau could not think this writing that takes place before and within speech to the extent that he belonged to the metaphysics of presence, he dreamed of the simple exteriority of death to life, evil to good, representation to presence, signifier to signified, representer to represented, mask to face, writing to speech. But all such oppositions, Derrida says, are irreducibly rooted in that metaphysics. Using them, one can only operate by reversal, that is to say, by confirmations. The supplement is none of these terms, it is especially not more a signifier than a signified, a representer than a presence, a writing than a speech. None of the terms of this series can, being comprehended within it, dominate the economy of difference or supplementarity. Rousseau's dream consisted of making the supplement enter metaphysics by force. And the great irony of this, which ends this section, this excerpt that we are given, is that Rousseau ultimately appeals to the reader. When he writes, you will say, I too am a dreamer, I admit it, but I do what others fail to do. I give my dreams as dreams and leave the reader to discover whether there is anything in them which may prove useful to those who are awake. And it's just the irony of this final appeal to the reader through the written word, which Rousseau has already repeatedly denigrated as supplement, as secondary, as substitute, and an inferior substitute for the pure presence of experience in the moment. It's this appeal to the reader that again reinforces the contradictions at the heart of the system, where it's a system that is entirely reliant upon writing and yet repeatedly denigrates writing as secondary, as a supplement, as a substitute for pure experience and pure presence. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about the fact that it's I'm making a podcast, that uh, there's some artificial aspects built into it, I started by giving the date and the time of, that I was making this recording, and I will tell you that it is now a couple days later, uh, and that the voice record, this voice recording, is 
produced with a lot of uh, fits and starts. There are parts that I wanted to edit out and change. I've left them in, but there are other parts that I did edit out and change. And there's an artificiality to this form that is being erased a little bit, elided by its presentation as a complete audio file to you. And I point that out to call attention to myths of the voice that continue, I think, to still inhabit our ways of being. So I'm going to stop here. I hope that this podcast has proved useful to me in our attempts to comprehend some of the arguments at work in deconstruction and in the writing of Derrida. And in particular, the focus here has been this excerpt from Of Grammatology. Please write to me with any questions or concerns or your thoughts. Share your thoughts on discussion board. I hope that this uh, crisis that we're facing right now is manageable for you. I hope that you're safe and healthy and sound. Be well, stay in touch, and let's keep at it. Thanks. Bingham